psalm for the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Thursday night, I got in bed and I was anxiously refreshing my phone. As the fires were spreading to our west, I wanted to make sure before my head hit the pillow that I had the latest information, the latest warnings about where the fires were, what our local officials were saying, how it might impact our town and I started thinking many anxious thoughts, and you probably know the kinds of thoughts that were going through my head when things like this come up. Among all the thoughts, I, I, my mind went to that place of, what if, what if we lost Everything that we own. Of course, as Colton prayed for many of our neighbors to our west, that's uh, not a hypothetical worry. It's a gut-wrenching reality. This week has been a sobering reminder of how fragile our possessions are. And that's just one way that economic security has been threatened lately. We've all started to feel the impact to one degree or another. Rising inflation. We brace ourselves when we have to fill up our tank with gas. Maybe even today when we're taking up the offering, you're 
gripping your wallet just a little tighter than you did last week or the week before. Whatever the circumstance may be, when your sense of security that comes from provision, finances, when your economic security is threatened, where do you turn? Do you uh, take to complaining and blaming and pointing fingers and Or do you just quietly toss and turn on your bed, worrying, wondering, questioning, fearing? Well, the hope of Psalm 4 is we can have peace in Christ even when we don't have economic security. We can trust in the Lord. We can rest in his favor. We can find joy in him. We can lie down and sleep and dwell in safety. We can have peace in Christ even without economic security. And as we walk through Psalm 4, we're going to see how we can have that peace. Uh, There's a a two-fold way that Psalm 4 reveals to us we can have that peace in Christ. And the first comes in verses 1 through 5, and it's this, repent of running to the worthless. Repent of running to the worthless. David begins Psalm 4 by asking the Lord to hear him in verse 1. That first line of verse 1, he says, answer me when I call. And then in the third line, he says, hear my prayer. And then sandwiched in between those two lines, he says, you have, past tense, given me relief when I was in distress. So David starts by recalling how God had delivered him in the past, and that gave him confidence in the present, confidence that the Lord will answer him again. David refers to God as God of my righteousness. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible puts it this way, the God who vindicates me. The New Living Translation says, the God who declares me innocent. King David is crying out to the God who validates him. He's praying to the one who assesses whether or not he's a successful king or not. And that's important because, as we see in the rest of the psalm, David is dealing with some people who have their own opinions about the kind of job that David was doing as king. 
So he cries out to the God who vindicates him in verse 1. And then in verse 2, David turns his attention to a group of men. Look at verse 2 again with me. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? If you're looking at the ESV, you'll see a footnote on that word men. uh, And it says, uh, or, O oh, men of rank. Uh, the sense of this term is men of rank, men of status. It's a title that refers to the influential men in Israel. The wealthy, property owners, those with assets, those with social power, leading men in Israel. And these men of rank were not pleased with the king. We get a sense for the beef that they had in verse 6 when David says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Other translations say, who will bring us prosperity? Or who will show us better times? Uh, These men of rank were looking to the king and they weren't seeing the results that they wanted. Some scholars believe this psalm was even written at a time of famine. Or drought. Whatever the specific circumstance might have been, it seems that the men of rank weren't seeing the economic blessings that they were counting on. And as a result, they look in shame on the king. They see the lack of economic prosperity and they point the finger to their king. This seems to be their mindset. If, if King David was really so great, if God was really blessing King David, then we would be seeing great harvests. If God was really had this you know, favor on his anointed one David, we would be seeing physical prosperity in Israel. But we're not getting the results that we want. We're not getting the harvest that we want. We're not seeing the benefit to us that we are looking for. So shame on you, King David. This happened on your watch. This economy is an F on your report card, David. This is not what we signed up for when we started with you as our king. We're not getting out of this what we were counting on, David. But David calls their evaluation of him empty words. Because they are shaming the king whom God honors. They scoff at the king whom God validates. And not only that, as a result, they're chasing after what is false. That term lies or falsehood, that which is false, can refer even to false gods. It it may be that these men of rank were even turning to false gods to give them the economic prosperity that they weren't getting from the Lord's anointed king, David. Uh, But in any case, even just looking for economic prosperity as an end in and of itself is a false hope. They're chasing, pursuing after what is false. The bottom line is, these men of rank needed to repent of their worthless assessment of this situation. They were angry that they weren't getting what they wanted. They were believing the lie that a good king must benefit them on their terms. 
And so they were shaming God's king. They were not trusting the Lord, and they needed to repent. So let me ask you, how do you assess God's king? The son of David, Jesus Christ, is on the throne today. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. How do you measure whether things are going well or not under his reign? Do you evaluate Jesus's actions based on how things personally benefit you, on whether you get the results that you were looking for under his watch? We do this in small and big ways. We evaluate Jesus's actions based on whether or not things personally benefit us. Uh, It comes out in small ways like saying, you know, man, I didn't know how I was going to pay this medical bill. But then out of the blue, I got a check in the mail and it covered the whole thing. God is good. Well, yeah, he is. And that was from God. So we should absolutely give him thanks. But is God only good because you were able to pay your bill? Would he have still been good if what you got in the mail was not a check that covered your bill, but a notification that your bill was going into collections? Is God still good? You have to watch out for evaluating God based on how things go according to our expectations and our desires. But we do this in bigger ways as well. Maybe you've looked at a situation you faced in life and you thought, this isn't what I signed up for when I started following you, Jesus. Maybe you've even found yourself thinking, whether you would say this out loud or not, in your heart, I I tithe regularly, I serve in church, I try to be a good person, and this is how you repay me, Jesus? I thought that if I did my part, You would bless me. Well, when we do this, when we evaluate Jesus based on whether or not he personally benefits us in the way that we want, we are running to worthless thinking. When Jesus doesn't give you what you want, do you run to another provider? Do you set your heart on False hopes, like economic security. When we do, we're running to worthless providers. As David goes on in this psalm, he takes these men of rank who are guilty of wrong thinking, guilty of a worthless assessment, and he counsels these men, about how to repent of running to the worthless. And in this, we receive instruction on if this is us, where do we go from here? How do we repent of running to the worthless? Well, if they're going to repent of running to the worthless, they need to take three steps. And the first is renewed thinking in verse 3. 
to repent of running to the worthless, the first thing that they need and the first thing we need is renewed thinking. In verse 3, David tells them what they need to know. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. This is what they need to know first if they're going to repent of running to the worthless. They need to know something. Well, As we read verse 3, and we'll see this throughout Psalms, but one of the features of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. Uh, the uh, author of a psalm will write one idea across two or three lines of poetry. And these lines are meant to be read together. Uh, each line interprets the other. Well, if we read these two lines of verse 3 together, look at those with me, we'll see that the term the godly in the first line is parallel with the word I in the second line. In other words, the godly is David. The godly, which is a singular term, is the Lord's anointed king. So he's saying you need to know something about the Lord's anointed. The men of rank needed to think rightly about the Lord's anointed king, the Christ. They needed to know that the Lord has given his anointed king a special status. The Lord has set apart his king for himself. And with that status comes access, that the Lord hears his king when he calls. So David's opponents, these men of rank, rank, needed to get their thinking right about the king. They needed to get their thinking about the king in line with how God assesses his king. This king is not someone to shame. He is someone to take refuge in, Psalm 2. Uh, these men of rank thought, rank thought that the king couldn't deliver prosperity, but the truth is he had access to the one who can open the vault of heaven. The Lord hears when the king calls. Well, like the men of rank, we need to have our minds renewed about the special place that the anointed one, Jesus, has in the eyes of God the Father. Do you know that the son of David has the ear of God the Father? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. David says about himself as the Lord's anointed king, the Lord hears when I call to him. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, 
More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, what? Interceding for us. According to Paul in Romans chapter 8, believers have all things in Christ, in the anointed king. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. We have greater wealth in Christ than all the riches of the world put together. And that includes the fact that we have an intercessor. One who stands on our behalf if we have trusted in Christ and found refuge in him. Standing at the right hand of God the Father is a king who represents us. Who vies for us. Who has the ear of God the Father. And when he calls, the Father answers. When the one interceding for us asks for something for us, the Father hears it. That's who we have in the anointed one. And so, these men of rank needed to understand that instead of running away from the anointed king, They need to run to the anointed king because he's the one who has access to God. He's the one who the Lord hears when he calls. Likewise, we need to not run away from the Lord's anointed when he doesn't give us what we want. No, we need to run and find refuge in the Lord's anointed, knowing who he is and the status that he has. We need to have right thinking, renewed thinking, about the position of the anointed king. But second, we need to have resolved anger. The repentance that David describes involves not only renewed thinking, but resolved anger. He says in verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. The men of rank were angry about their circumstances. And if left unchecked, that anger would lead them to sin in word and in action. So David calls on them to deal with their anger. He tells them to take that anger in their hearts and instead of, it letting, instead of letting it come out in sinful words and actions, they're to go home, lock the door, and do work. Do intentional work on their hearts. Paul quotes Psalm 4.4 in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, where he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Paul gives us a window into how he understood Psalm 4.4. And he emphasizes, not only is it important to keep anger from boiling out into external sin. But also that it's important not to let anger fester over time in internal sin. Because unchecked anger 
is the devil's playground. When you are angry that circumstances didn't go your way, what do you do with your anger? We have three options. We can indulge it and let it come out in sinful words and actions. We can complain. We can slander. We can use it as an excuse to do whatever we want to do. So we can indulge it. Or second, we can ignore it. Just let it fester in our hearts over time. We can grow in bitterness. We can let the pressure build. We can resent God, resent others. We can indulge it. We can ignore it. Or we can take it to the Lord and let him work on our hearts. We can tell God how we feel. We can ask him for help. We can open his word and take steps to change our hearts. Did you know that you can take your anger to God? Did you know that that's allowed? That it's actually best? One of the reasons I'm so glad that we get to study the Psalms is because we get to see examples of what it looks like to lament. In lament, we take our pain, our fears, our suffering, our anger, our difficulty, and instead of directing our hearts outward in sin or directing our hearts inward in sin, we direct them upward to heaven and we cast our cares on God. Sadly, I think too many people think that there's only two ways to respond to anger, either indulge it or ignore it. Some people think, Oh, if I just get this off my chest, well, then I'll be okay. Or some people think, well, if I just put a lid on it and move on, then that's dealing with it. But, oh, how much wrath and bitterness out of us could be avoided if we learned the forgotten practice of lament. Take your anger to God. Don't direct it at him in hatred. Offer it to him and ask him for help to change your heart. Well, finally, this repentance involves not just renewed thinking or resolved anger, but finally right worship. Right worship. In verse 5, David says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices. Once they are thinking rightly about who this king is, the men of rank then are to deal with their anger, and once they have dealt with their anger, then they will be ready to worship God rightly. Again, we want to read these two lines uh, of this verse together. What is a right sacrifice? It's a sacrifice offered from a heart that trusts the Lord. It isn't right because of the animal or the grain or whatever that's offered. 
It isn't a right sacrifice because all of the rules and stipulations about the sacrifice are followed to the letter. A right sacrifice is a matter of a heart that trusts the Lord. The ultimate end of true repentance is right worship. The ultimate end of true repentance is right worship. Right worship starts from a heart that trusts the Lord. A heart that believes that the Lord says what he means. A heart that believes that the Lord knows best. And then that trust is demonstrated in an offering of worship. David says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. True repentance ultimately ends in right worship. If we don't offer ourselves to God in worship, it shows that we don't trust him in our hearts. But if we do trust him, we will give ourselves to him. God, I, I don't know why the things are that the, the way that they are, but I trust that you know what's best. So here I am. God, I'm not sure how we're going to make it, but I believe that you will keep your word. So I am entrusting my family, my possessions, my career, my life to you. God, even when there's not much left, you can have it all. The ultimate end of true repentance is right worship that flows out of a heart that trusts God. And the repentance that David calls for begins by renewing our thinking, takes action to resolve our anger, and ends in right worship. You can have peace even without economic security. You can have peace in Christ if first you repent of running to the worthless, and if you second and finally Rest in the favor of the righteous. We saw in verses 1 through 5, David counsels these men of rank to repent of running to the worthless. But now in verses 6 through 8, David concludes the psalm by turning his attention back to the Lord. He says in verse 6, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Again, these men of renown, uh, or the men of, men of rank, are looking for good. Who's going to show us some good? David, when is it going to start? When are we going to get to the good part? They want prosperity. And so David turns his attention to where true goodness comes from. From the face of God shining on his people. True good comes from the favor of God. In this prayer, David is referring back to the blessing that God told Aaron to pronounce over the people of Israel in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you 
and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. David goes on to talk about where true joy comes from in verse 7. He says to the Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The men of rank thought that their joy could be found in an abundance of grain and wine. They thought, if I have a good year, if I have a big harvest, well, then I'll be happy. They set their hopes on economic prosperity. But David says to the Lord, my heart is filled with joy in you, Lord. Not even the greatest physical prosperity compares to the joy you have given me in my heart. We'll hear David tell the Lord in Psalm 16:11, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." And then David concludes this way in verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David's confidence in the Lord is expressed in his sleep. He's not up all night fretting about Israel's economy. He's not up all night worrying about what the influencers think of him. He is able to rest well in the peace that comes only from the Lord. He says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. One of the things I love about memorizing scripture is you notice little things that you might not have noticed if you had just read it quickly. When you have to memorize it, when you're forced to deal with every the and uh and every adjective and noun and, and make sure you get it all straight, you notice some words. And the words that stuck out at me whenever I first started memorizing Psalm 4.8 is you alone. Not just that you make me dwell in safety. No, you alone O oh Lord, only the Lord can give the kind of peace, the kind of safety, the kind of security that he can give. David's sense of security doesn't come from physical provisions. David's sense of security doesn't come from political popularity as king. Only God can give David the kind of confidence that he has, the kind of confidence that takes him to bed and gives him a night of sleep. You and I can have that kind of peace, even without plenty. You and I can have that if we rest in the face shining upon us in Christ. We can have that peace if we rest in the favor of the God of our righteousness. The God 
who vindicates us. The God who declares us innocent in Christ. Is the smile of God enough for you? Is the joy of the Lord enough for you? Is the peace found in Christ enough for you? If not, it it may be that you don't know Christ. It may be that you've never tasted the joy that's found in him. Maybe you've lived your whole life chasing after empty words and false hopes like these men of rank. You may be starving, begging for satisfaction in the depths of your heart. And you just can't seem to find what you're looking for no matter where you turn. You need to know that there is a satisfaction found in Jesus that nothing in this world compares to. You can't find this kind of satisfaction in money or possessions. You can't find this kind of satisfaction in sex or relationships. You can't find this kind of satisfaction in experiences or lifestyle. You can't find this kind of satisfaction in power or popularity. You can only find it in Jesus. You can have peace in Christ, joy in Christ, favor from God, not based on anything you do, not based on who you are, but because Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed king, died for those who chase after the worthless. He died to take the punishment that we deserve for putting our hopes in that which is false. Jesus took the punishment we deserve so that we could have his righteousness given to us. The Lord who vindicates his anointed, the Lord who declares his son righteous, gives that status of righteousness to all who trust in him. If you turn from sin and stop running to other things for your satisfaction, and if you give your life to Jesus, you can know peace in Christ, joy in Christ, and it's found only in him. You alone, O Lord. If you struggle with this, it may be that you do know Christ, but you've just forgotten who he is. You need to be reminded of just how good he is. Maybe you're not happy because you've been looking to something other than Christ to satisfy you. And you need to remember the joy that he's given you. You need to remember how faithful he has been to you. You need to remember the grace that Jesus has lavished upon you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake 
He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus endured the Father's face turning away so that we could experience the Father's face of favor shining on worthless sinners like you and me. Jesus gave up everything to give us more joy than when grain and wine abound. Jesus became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and have God as the God of our righteousness. Jesus has secured the favor of God for us. You and I can have peace in Christ if we rest in the favor that comes from the righteous. As we conclude, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, uh, excuse me, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can have peace in Christ, even without economic security. When inflation skyrockets, you can rest. When gas prices Soar, you can have joy. If you lose everything you own, you can sleep in safety if you find refuge in King Jesus. Pray with me. Father, God of our righteousness in Christ. You have shown us favor in Christ. You have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so, Lord, even when grain and wine do not 
abound. Even when the world is looking around and saying, when are we going to see good again? When are we going to see prosperity again? When are we going to see the results that we want? Lord, we can rest. We can have peace. We can have joy in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would establish our hearts in the good found in Christ. Would we rest well knowing that the King is on his throne. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.